0: Smilah Rahman Rahim, Alhamdulillah, Hirobil Adamin, Wasalla, who was Selema, Barakala, Sayidina, Mulana, Mohammedin, Wala, Alihi, Wasahbi, Waselam, Allahumma, Alimna, Mayan Fauna, Wanfana, Bima, Alamtana, Wasidna, Min Fadlika, Inman, Water Adiman, Amina, Robbel Adamin. Alhamdulillah, today is lesson forty seven, and last week we were talking about the Hijra. Specifically, who were the first to make Hijrah and what happened with them. We talked about the Hijrah of Abu Salama, radiallahu anhu, and what transpired between him and the clan of his wife, Um Salama, what happened with their son, and how they were eventually reunited. We then talked about the Hijrah of Umar ibn al-Khattabi, radiyallahu anhu, and what happened with some of those Muslims who traveled with him. We talked about Ayyash ibn Abi anhu, who made Hijrah with Umar and was tricked to go back from Medina to Mecca to calm his mother, who was basically having a meltdown over his Hijrah, at least as Abu Jahl described it. We talked about how Abu Jahl went to Medina after the hijrah of of Ayyash and convinced him to return with him and his companions to Mecca to console his mother, only to be tricked and tied up and imprisoned in Mecca when he finally got back. And we mentioned that because there were two travel companions. There was Sayyidina Umar radiAllahu anhu who told uh, Ayyash and uh, Hisham bin Amr to meet him outside of Mecca on the, in the morning time at dawn, and anyone who was not there on time would be presumed to have uh, to have been held back and prevented from traveling. So it was just Ayash the next morning, and Hisham wasn't there. But when Ayash was tricked to go back to Mecca and imprisoned, he goes into this makeshift cell, and lo and behold, there is Hisham. He was in fact detained. And this is in a time when the Prophet was still in Mecca, but there's no ability to break him out or do anything that would involve uh, force. So when the Prophet made Hijrah to Medina, there are narrations that mention him praying for these individuals in his Dua, in his Qunut. Uh, asking Allah to rescue them. And there's also narrations where he would ask the Muslims in Medina who is going to bring me Ayash and Hisham. And eventually Al-Walid Ibn al-Walid, so this is the uh, brother of Khalid ibn Walid, he said, I'm up for it. For your sake, Ya Rasulullah. And so we described last week how Al-Walid ibn al-Walid's covert operation was the very first prison break in the history of Islam. Now in the seerah of Ibn Hisham he tells this story and he he narrates from his transmitters who say that Al-Walid Ibn Al-Walid entered Mecca undercover and it gives some detail about this rescue operation. He enters Mecca undercover and he's walking around and he sees this woman carrying some food he asks her, where are you going? So this woman says I'm going to the two that are mahbous those two that are detained, that are imprisoned she's bringing food to those who are being imprisoned. So here's a clue that maybe she can lead him to where they are because he enters Mecca without any idea where they're located. Just You imagine you're sent on an operation to break people out of prison And you can't find the prison It's just in the city, that's all you know So subhanallah, Allah facilitated for him to see this young woman bringing food And he asks her and she spills the beans And so he follows her very carefully until he finds the compound Now the narration says that this compound was built It was a a walled compound, uh, four walls but there was no roof. But it was built up high, so they couldn't climb out. So the narration says that when it was dark, al Walid Ibn al walid climbed over the wall, and he took this white flint rock, and he used this to break them free from the shackles. So a white flint rock is a very strong rock. Uh, flint has been used for thousands and thousands of years, going back into ancient history uh, and, and for, for arrows, for spear, uh, spearheads, and the like. So he takes a flint rock, and he places it under the shackles, and he strikes the shackles with his sword. So one sharp object over the shackles, which are over another sharp object, or a very strong stone. This manages to break the shackles, so he breaks the shackles of Ayash and Hisham. And after this, the narration says that this sword used to break the shackles was called Dhul Marwa, uh, that of the flint, because of the flintstone involved in breaking the shackles. The narration says that he, cam- he carried them on his camel and led it on foot. And on the path, he stumbled and... Injured his toe his toe was smashed up and bloodied just an injury with a rock presumably And his toe is bleeding as he's leading them on the camel and he recites some beautiful poetry about his toe (laughs) He says are you but he addresses his own toe and he says are you but a toe that has bled And for the sake of Allah you have faced what you have faced basically his toe got injured, Fisabir, and he's addressing his toe, saying, You're just a toe that's bled, but it's for the sake of Allah that you bled. So then he managed to get all the way to Medina and deliver Ayash and Hisham bin Amr Radiallahu Anhumah. So this is a little bit more detail to that story. In the sera works, they talk about the hijrah of Abu Salama, what happened with his wife and child. They tell the story of Umar's hijrah and what happened with Ayash and Hisham. And usually in most of the classical books of seerah, they mention after this, this, another famous hijrah story, which is the story of the hijrah of Suhaib al-Rumi, radiallahu anhu. Because if you think about it, out of the hundreds of individual Muslims who made hijrah, not every one of them had an extraordinary hijrah story, even though their personal hijrah is extraordinary because it was received directly from the Prophet Sallallahu and they have the honor of being muhajirun. In that sense it's extraordinary but the actual journey itself would have been an ordinary trip. You travel on camel or on foot, you stop and you sleep, you eat some food, you get back up the next day, you keep going until you get there. Uneventful for the most part. Now a lot of these Hijra stories uh, the more notable ones describe events either as they're preparing to leave as others try to prevent them or they are detailing things that happened along the way or things that happened after they arrived so we see in the story of Ayyash that story involves what happened after he arrived in Medina and he gets taken back to Mecca through this uh, trick of Abu Jahl. We see in the story of Abu Salama, where he's going and he's separated from his family. We see in the story of Suhaib, what happens before he makes the hijrah. And in the hijrah of the Prophet Sallallahu and Abu Bakr, we see what happens before, during, and after. So what is the story of Suhaib al-Rumi and his hijrah? Well, as a reminder, Suhaib al-Rumi is Suhaib ibn Sinan al-Rumi. Al-Rumi is a laqab. It's a, it's a kind of nickname given to him. And we have to clear up something. Suhaib al-Rumi, although he is called a Rumi, he is not uh, a, a Byzantine. He's not Rumi in his uh, ethnic stock. He is an Arab. He is called Rumi because he was taken as a slave. So the story is that he's originally from a tribe in northern Arabia. That tribe was conquered in inner tribal warfare, and he was taken as a slave and at a young age, and was sold as a slave in Byzantium, what we call the Rum, right? And because he was growing up in those days in Jahiliyyah, uh, among the Rum, he grew up among them and took the laqab a rumi So ethnically he is Arab, but culturally he is Rumi. And to, to a certain extent, even linguistically, he is Rumi because some narrations say that he had an, an accent to his Arabic so we tend to think of the world in terms of borders today and each country has distinct borders and a distinct culture and a distinct language if you go to turkey today for instance they speak turkish and there's a border and if you go further south you get to syria and syria has a border and arabic is their language but are there no Syrians in Halab who speak Turkish? Are there not Turkish words that have made their way into certain Syrian dialects? Do they not look similar to Turks and do not those southern Turks look similar to the Syrians? They're shared features ethnically or, or linguistically. So although he's in Byzantium, this is still North, North Arabia in present day Sham, which means that Arabic isn't a completely foreign language but growing up among the Rome, the, the the byzantium he spoke arabic with something of an accent now his story is that one of his his masters sold him to an arab man named Kelb, who brought him to mecca and sold him again he sold him to none other than abdullah ibn judan now abdullah ibn judan is the owner of the large house that was used to convene the meeting among the different clan leaders when they came up with the Hilf al-fudul, the alliance of virtue. And Abdullah ibn Jud'an was a very generous man in Jahiliyyah. He was also very easygoing with the slaves that he owned. He was not oppressive towards any of his slaves who had converted to Islam. So Suhaib was in a relatively good position being the slave of Abdullah ibn Jud'an. And because he was fair to his slaves, Suhaib was able to work his way and buy his own freedom. So he was eventually able to buy his own freedom and lived in Mecca as a free man. And he was engaged in business and trade. And who remembers from the earlier classes, Suhaib's very close friend. He had a very close friend in Mecca. We mentioned him, Ammar bin Yasir. Ammar bin Yasir was his close friend. And we mentioned how the two of them went into Dar al-Arqam together. And they both had the encounter with the Prophet Sallallahu and embraced Islam at the same time. So Suhaib rumi is Arab ethnically, Rumi, Culturally, somewhat, and, and even linguistically, somewhat, but he managed to buy his own freedom and was uh, successful uh, in the extent to the extent that he was able to be successful as a freed slave in business. What about his hijrah? In the Sira accounts, they mention two or three narrations about his hijrah story, uh, so they're somewhat related to each other. In the Mustadrak of Imam Al Hakim, uh, he narrates the Hadith which says that Suhaib was ready to respond to the call and make the hijrah. And after getting the permission from the Prophet Sallallahu because they all sought that before going, he tried to do it very discreetly. But we've mentioned before that discreet hijrah was very difficult because it's hard to get things done in a small town without getting noticed, especially when you're preparing for a trip. Imagine you're in a tiny town, And there's a single gas station, and you need to fill up your car to drive away. Someone's going to notice that you're at the gas station filling up your car, right? So even more so back then, because you have to prepare prepare a camel, gather food, gather belongings, pack them together. Who is doing that? Anyone who does that is going on a trip. If they're going on a trip, where are they going? People talk. So, So, hey, try to do it secretly, but he was unsuccessful. Quraysh heard that he was leaving, and they went to him and said, listen, you came to us destitute and poor. He was a slave. And your money increased while you were with us, and you attained great things, and now you wanna leave with all of your money and your life? So they're basically telling him, listen, you came here as a slave, and you bought your way to freedom and you were able to have a successful business here among us, we allowed you to do that. Are you gonna now leave and take all that money, that capital and, and, and yourself and just get out of here after we've helped you? So this is what they said. They said, wallahi, we won't allow it. So they were threatening him and he said, what say you? I give you all of my money, will you leave me alone? Will you leave me be? They said, okay, sure. And he said to them, I give you all of my money. So we're talking property, money, other forms of capital, right? And when the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Wasallam heard what transpired between Quraysh and Suhaib and how he gave away all of his money in return for being left alone to make the hijrah. Think about it. He's giving up all of his money to be left alone to take this arduous trip. What is he getting in return? In dunya terms, he's getting nothing but a difficult trip, but left alone to make it. When the word reaches the Prophet Sallallahu he says, "Suhayb has profited very well. Rabih al He has succeeded and profited very well in this transaction. And shortly after this incident with Suhaib, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala revealed an ayah of the Quran about him. And this verse is in Surah Al-Baqarah where Allah Ta'ala says, "Wa nasi mayashri wallahu raufum bil-'ibad." There are those among the people who sell themselves for the sake of Allah, and Allah is kind towards his servants. This verse was revealed about Suhaib rumi because he basically exchanged all that he owned in order to be left alone to make this very difficult trip in poverty all the way to Medina so that he could secure his Iman, secure his faith and be among those who obey the command of Allah and to be in the company of Rasulullah when he makes his way to Medina. This is the first narration about Suhaib's hijrah. It just tells us of the offer to give up all of his money in return for being left alone. There's another narration also in the mustadrak of Imam al-Hakim from Ikrimah, and he narrates that as Quraysh heard about Suhaib preparing to leave, they went out And tried to surround him on the outskirts of Mecca so they could stop him from going any further. So you can picture this he's outside of Mecca on the outskirts on his camel he's already left but they catch up to him and they surround him from all sides to stop him from going any further. And this narration says that when Suhaib saw the group surrounding him he took out his bow And he said to them Ya mashara Quraysh O Quraysh I have 40 arrows in my quiver And wallahi I swear by Allah That none of you will get to me Until I've used up all 40 And then after I've used up All 40 of the arrows Here is my sword And I swear by Allah No one will be able to get to me Until I get to him first so they're wondering what they're going to do. They're not going to fight him. They know he's serious. So as they're wondering what they're going to do, it's kind of a stalemate. He's waiting for them to make their move, and he's waiting to respond. He then says to them uh, in this stalemate, what if I tell you where I hid all my wealth? He doesn't want bloodshed, but he's willing to, to get out. So then he says, what if I tell you where all my wealth is hidden? Because in those days, obviously, there's no, there's no bank. So if you want to have wealth, you either store it with someone who's trustworthy, like the Prophet or you have to bury it somewhere in a cache. So you bury it somewhere. You know, we have these stories of secret hidden tre- treasures, right? Treasure chests, treasure maps, and all of that because in the reality back then is this is is how you hid your wealth so he says what if i tell you where i hid all of my wealth they accepted the offer and they let him go and he made hijrah absolutely penniless and he had to start over from scratch in medina so this is a story of so one story tells us of the exchange and the other story tells us the exchange with the implicit threat of violence if they tried to stop him and they wanted the money more than they wanted to fight him. So they took the money and let him go. So that's his story. We now get to the story of the hijrah of Rasulullah In the seerah works, they describe some of these hijrah stories. And then they get to the hijrah of the Prophet Sallallahu And they mentioned that more and more families and individuals were making hijrah. And in fact, some entire clans were making hijrah in mass in this trickle. And they say that around three or four months after the Pledge of Al-Aqaba, the second Pledge of Al-Aqaba, three or four months after that, there were virtually no more Muslims left in Mecca, except for the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Abu Bakr, Ali and their immediate families. So this doesn't mean that there were no others there, it's just that there were some who didn't make hijrah because they were imprisoned, like Ayash and Hisham, or those who were forced to renounce their Islam and they kept their Islam concealed and they were, it wasn't safe enough for them to even say they were Muslim. Uh, and then you had those who were too sick or too weak to travel. This is one of the the narrative threads we see in the seerah that as everyone makes the hijrah, there's going to be people who don't go until much later. Some of those people were unable. Some of those like Jafar ibn Abi Talib were basically detained and prevented from going for a while. Then you have those who became Muslim after but who for various reasons stayed behind without making the hijrah. So some of those stories come up in the Medinan period uh, later on. But now we're coming to the story of the Prophet's hijrah. We mentioned how Allah gave the command. And the Prophet ﷺ conveyed the divine command to make hijrah. And with that command, anyone who prepared to go, would to go seek the permission of the Prophet ﷺ. So even though the divine command is make hijrah, Whenever a person wanted to go, they would seek the ithin from the Prophet ﷺ, and he would give them the ithin, the permission, and then they would go. So the Prophet ﷺ himself was waiting for divine ithin, divine permission for him to migrate. So during this time, he's overseeing the hijrah of the others, and this is a leader. The leader is making sure that others get their passage to safety, and usually he's the last one to leave. So he is giving them the permission. And finally, he gets the permission from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make the hijrah. Now during this period, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq is asking for permission. He wants to go. Yet the Prophet Wasallam is telling him to keep waiting. So imagine all of these companions, they're coming. And they're saying, Ya Rasulullah, give me permission to make the hijrah. And he gives them permission to make the hijrah. Yet Abu Bakr as Siddiq is saying the same thing. And the Prophet says, La tista'ajil. Don't be in haste. Don't be in a hurry. Wait. Abu Bakr is going to listen and obey. But he wants to make the hijrah. One narration says that the Prophet says, Don't be in haste. For it may be that Allah will give you a sahib, a travel companion. He doesn't say who it is, but Abu Bakr al-Saddiq knows exactly who it is. It refers to himself, sallallahu alayhi wa So, Ibn Hisham, in his seerah, he narrates that as the torture and persecution intensified, Abu Bakr Kept asking the Prophet ﷺ for permission to make the hijrah. And at that point, the Prophet ﷺ told him to make preparations for it, but without the explicit permission to go. He said, prepare for it. So, to prepare for the hijrah, Abu Bakr al Siddiq did not go and get one camel for himself to make hijrah. He went and purchased two camels, two able bodied camels. And if you've ever lived around camels, you understand that if you're going to use them to travel vast distances, you can't just buy them and get on them and just ride off until the sunset because camels need water, they need food. And we know the camel has a hump. You know, the hump, it can, it goes down as well. It's based on how much water they have stored. So Abu Bakr as siddiq radiallahu anhu, he purchases two camels, he puts them in this camel pen, and he's feeding them and giving them water and caring for them so that they have enough time to get stronger and really well fed and also adequately hydrated so that the camel hump appears, which is telling them that they have enough water to go vast distances, so that they're enabling them to travel. So this is taking some time. The average time to prepare a camel for travel like that is three or four months. So he receives the permission to prepare. So he gets the camels and he confines them, preparing them for this long journey. So at some point, the divine permission comes to make the hijrah. But this divine permission came after a series of events. And we want to describe these events that led to the hijrah itself. And this was actually the topic of the khutbah last Friday. We talked about this story. So, those of you who were here for Jumu'ah, you'll be hearing the same story, maybe a little bit of detail added in. So, in the 13th year, right at the cusp of this hijrah, Quraysh began once again planning to kill the Prophet. There were different attempts and there were different discussions in the previous years, but it never took off as an idea that they could properly execute because of tribal and clan considerations and the threat of tribal conflict. But now, in the 13th year, they were having this discussion again about killing the Prophet Ibn Ishaq and others narrate that Quraysh had assembled a gathering in one of the gathering houses of the tribes and clans the Darul Nadwa and in this meeting they were discussing what they were going to do with the Prophet Sallallahu The narration says that soon after they convened this meeting an old man showed up at the door and this old man was you know when you see an old man in that day and age looking respectable. The presumption is that he's a tribal elder. So they see him, and they ask him, sheikh who is the elder? And he says that I am one of the people of the Nejd. And the Nejd refers to the eastern part of Arabia. And the reason why it's called the Nejd is because the Nejd refers to the highlands, the, the elevated areas. So Medina is volcanic, The Hijaz in general is rocky and southern Hijaz is very mountainous. This Najd is a highland area to the east. He says, I'm from the Najd and I've heard of your plans against Muhammad and I've come to hear what you have to say. Perhaps you'll hear me out and let me offer my opinion. Now this Shaykh, Shaykh al-Najdi, was Shaytan in a human form. Shaytan is a jinn, and jinn can shapeshift, and he was in a human form. According to this narration, he comes to the meeting asking to give his input. So they consulted one another, and one of the people present advised, saying, let's put him behind bars and lock him up, and let's wait for the same fate to befall him that befell the poets like him in the past, such as Nabigha and Zuhair so he can die imprisoned just like they died in prison so suggestion number 1 is let's imprison him for life until he dies and then we're done with him a sheikh uh, al najdi otherwise known as iblis alayhi la the old man of the najd he objects and he says this should not be your course of action he says if you imprison him the news of it is going to spread behind his prison door. And it won't be long until they launch an attack against you and free him from your control and then overcome you. You have to consider another course of action. So, he's playing the shaytani role, you know, just suggesting. And that's what Shaytan does. He can't force you to do anything. No one can say the devil made me do it. Shaytan will say on the day of judgment that all I did was whisper to them and called them, and they answered. So shaitan says, "Mm, you shouldn't do that. But he's not coming out with what should be done. He's just listening. Another person in the gathering says, let us exile him from our midst. Let us kick him out of our land, so when he leaves us, it won't matter where he goes. This is a Meccan problem in his understanding. So if we just kick him out, he can go wherever it doesn't matter we'll be rid of him but the old man of the Najd otherwise known as Shaytan he says objecting this should not be your course of action haven't you observed his fine speech his beautiful way of speaking have you not observed his compelling nature and how he has effect- how he affects the hearts of men have you not seen this he says if you do that you will not be safe from him settling among some tribe of the Arabs and winning them over with his words until they pledge their loyalty and he leads them to you and they seize power from your hands and do with you as they wish consider another course of action so he's not wrong he's not wrong in either account when he objects to the first one, he says, If you exile, if you imprison him, they're going to break him out. That's true. They would have. And now, at the suggestion of exile, he says, If you, if you exile him, he's going to find a people who follow him and they're going to come, come at you. He wasn't wrong. Because shaitan can speak the truth. Sadaqa wa huwa kathub. And then Abu Jahl spoke up. Abu Jahl in the meeting says, I have a suggestion that none of you have yet proposed. We should take from every clan a young and strong, a young man, a strong young man from a prominent family and give him a sharp sword. Then have them all go forth and strike him with the sword blow of a single man, killing him. After that's been done, his blood will be evenly divided between all of the clans and they will be unable to wage war against all of them. So they will have to settle with an acceptable blood money to which we'll all contribute. So because there's always this issue with the potential outbreak of tribal hostilities, the idea is to distribute the blame among so many that it's impossible for this clan to rise up against all of them so they will be forced to accept diya blood money and they're done with this problem so the suggestion here you see how it's escalated first imprisonment second was exile and now it is assassination but in a way that will not create any blowback on the clans so this is abu Jahl's suggestion now, the old man of Najd, a Shaykh al-Najdi, Shaytan, he speaks up and says, in my opinion, this is the only acceptable course of action. This is the only way it can be done. And they agreed that this is what they were going to do. The crowd dispersed, having decided that this is the way forward to assassinate the Prophet wasallam. Now soon after this, the angel Jibreel alayhi salam descends to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and says to him, do not sleep in your bed tonight. Later that night, we know that these young men assembled outside of his door, waiting for him to go to sleep so they could go inside and assassinate him all at once. When the Prophet Sallallahu saw them outside lying in wait, he said to the young Ali radiallahu anhu, sleep in my bed and wrap yourself up in this mantle of mine and nothing harmful will befall you. Imam Ali later reflects on this night and he says it was the sweetest sleep he ever had in his life. I want you to always picture this in your own life. Imagine you have eight or nine people stacked up outside your door with weapons waiting to come inside and kill you. And you tell your young cousin to go to sleep and he knows what's going on too. And your cousin has the best sleep of his life. Is that possible? I think for most of us, we're not even going to sleep. We'll be so uh, in such a state of heightened alert that it's impossible to sleep. Yet Sayyidina Ali falls asleep. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam then takes a handful of dust. He's inside of the house, but this is an era before carpeting, so dust was readily available. He takes a handful of dust into his blessed hand and he sprinkles it reaching outside he sprinkles it outside reaching the heads of these young men and he's reciting surah yasin he begins from uh, the beginning of yasin until he reaches the verse where allah ta'ala says waj'alna we placed uh, in front of them a barrier saddan and from behind them min khalfihim sadda another barrier behind them and then we covered them and such that they do not see. And the ulama mentioned that this ayah is Mujarrabah. It's one of the mujarrabat that if you fear an oppressor, recite this verse with the intention of protection and insha'Allah, Allah guards you, Allah protects you. So he recited this and Allah averted their eyes from seeing the Prophet Sallallahu exit his house. So imagine they're all outside of the house waiting. He sprinkles the dust from outside the window, recites the ayat and he walks out and they don't even see him. Allah covered their eyes such that they can see, but they can't see him. Because they didn't go blind, they just couldn't see him. And this was a physical reality, where physically they can see everything, but Allah concealed him and they couldn't see him. Right? And that was actually their reality, metaphysically speaking, during the course of his da'wah because they would see him, but they couldn't see him, right? They could see him, but they couldn't see. They saw yatimu Quraysh, they saw the orphan boy of Quraysh, but they didn't see Rasulullah in his actual status. So in this sense, they'd see around them, but they can't see him. So he gets out. The narration mentions that they're waiting and waiting and someone saw the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam leaving and then they see these people standing outside waiting and they say, what are you doing? And they said, we're waiting for him to fall asleep. Right? And they said, what are you talking about? He left. He just walked past you. And then they touch their heads and they feel this dust and they realize that he got away. Where did he go? Who knows where he went? He went to the house of Abu Bakr siddiq radiallahu anhu. The ulama say that the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ begins from the moment he leaves his house to go to the house of Abu Bakr So the first stopping point in the journey was inside of Mecca in the house of Abu Bakr al-Siddiq. So the second stopping point was not the cave. That, uh, sorry, the second stopping point was the cave. That wasn't the first stopping point. So now it's time to make Hijrah. Allah Ta'ala has commanded him to migrate, the permission has been given, the means have been prepared, and they're ready to go. It was at this point, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala revealed an ayah of the Quran in Surah Al-Isra. Allah revealed this ayah in Surah Al-Isra, and it's in the context of the Hijrah. Allah Ta'ala instructs the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam to make a du'a. And in this du'a, وَقُرْ رَبِّي أَدَخِلْنِي مُدْخَلَ صِدْقٍ وَأَخْرِجْنِي مُخْرَجَ صِدْقٍ وَجَعَلْ لِي مِن لَدُنْكَ سُلْطَانًا نَصِيرًا Say, O my Lord, let my entry be by the gate of truth and honor and make my exit by the gate of truth and honor, truthfulness, and grant from me, grant me from you a Sultan Nasir, an aiding authority. This is in Surah Isra. In the Mustadrak of Imam Al-Hakim, there's a narration from Zayd ibn Aslam who says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Medina the entry point of Sidq, right? The Mudhala Sidq. And he made Mecca the Mukhraj of Sidq the exit point of righteousness, and Allah made the Ansar the Sultan Nasir, this uh, helpful authority, because they had some power, and then they pledged their loyalty to him, making him the leader. So this ayah was revealed in, co- in the context of the Hijrah, leaving Mecca, going to Medina, and being received by the Ansar, who had political authority, who pledged their fealty to him, so when the Prophet received this permission from Allah to make the hijrah, he asks Jibreel alayhi salam, Who will make hijrah with me? And Jibreel said, Abu Bakr as anhu. And it was at this point that he was given the explicit permission for him to be the travel companion before which he was alluding to that as a possibility. This is what the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam desired and hoped for, but was waiting for the permission of Allah to do so. And so he tells Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, and he says, As-Suhbah, Ya Rasulullah, and he says, As-Suhbah, and he breaks down in tears, tears of joy. And we have some detailed accounts of that Hijrah story uh, and one of the more detailed ones is coming from the daughter of Abu Bakr Siddiq anha, And that is Sayyida Aisha. There's also Asma. We'll get to her as well. But Sayyidina Aisha رضي anha Ummul Muminin, she mentions her own personal experience of the Hijrah when she was around six or seven years old. This is in the time of the Hijrah. She says, I don't, and this is in Bukhari, she says, I don't remember any time except that my parents were Muslims. She has no memory of her father or mother prior to Islam. All she knows is Islam. She says, I don't remember any day except that the Prophet ﷺ would come visit us in our home. And when he was given the permission to make hijrah and he told the Muslims to make the hijrah, Abu Bakr prepared a camel to migrate. And he asked the Prophet ﷺ for permission. When Abu Bakr asked for permission, the Prophet ﷺ said, Wait, I hope Allah will give us permission. He said, or he asked, Are you hoping for my suhbah, my companionship? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Yes, that is what I'm hoping for. She says, it was a hot time of the day when we saw a person approaching from a distance. And this is a very strange thing to happen in Arabia, for a person to approach your home in the middle of the day because it's so hot everyone stays inside for a siesta or to at least escape the heat. She says, We saw this figure and he had wrapped his turban around his face. And we recognize from the distance that this was the Prophet sallallahu And we said, Wallahi, the only reason he must be coming is because of something very serious and grave. Because no one comes to other people's homes at that time of the day, in the middle of the day. He arrives at the home, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq gives him permission to enter. And as he enters the house of Abu Bakr, Abu Bakr he says, Remove everyone from the room. So everyone is told to be removed from the house except for Abu Bakr and the Prophet. Abu Bakr responds by saying, But they are your family. How so? They are your family, referring to, say, the Aisha and the in laws, because the the Aqtul Nikah had already been performed. So, in that sense, it was all family through marriage. And so the Prophet ﷺ conveys in their presence, saying, Allah has given me permission to make hijrah. Abu Bakr says, Did Allah allow for me to be your sahib, your companion? I beg you, Ya Rasulullah, may my, father, my mother and father be sacrificed for you. Did he give permission for me to be your companion on this journey? And he said, Yes, permission was given for you to accompany me. Sayyidah Aisha says, I never saw a man cry out of joy like I saw from my father. I never believed that people could cry out of happiness until that day. So she saw the tears of joy. do me just put yourself in that position. Imagine. Is, could there be any happier day in this dunya to be given permission to be in the close companionship of Rasulullah on that journey? Imagine. So he's crying tears of joy. Abu Bakr says, Ya Rasulullah, I have prepared two camels and one of them Is yours so we know from other narrations that he bought them some months before and he was feeding them and giving them lots of water so they would be able to take this long trip he says I have two camels ready one of them is yours this implies that at the time of the hijrah the Prophet did not have a camel the Prophet responds to Abu Bakr by saying, It's only my camel if I pay you the full price for it. <laughs> Think about that. The Prophet, look at this muru'ah, this rujula, this, this akhlaq. This is Rasulullah. He doesn't take advantage of people and he models for us the ideal. He says, no, I insist on paying for this camel. The scholars say that in addition to modeling character, he also wants to pay for the camel, so he receives the reward of spending fisa for the hijrah, buying his own camel. Abu Bakr, of course, wants to get the ajr of giving the camel to be the, the means of transport for his hijrah in receiving that ajr. So we have two things here. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi insists on paying him. So Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was forced to accept uh, a sum of money for this camel. Now we mentioned the family of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq. We have, we have of course his wife Um rumman and we have Say the Aisha, the daughter of Um Ruman. We then have a daughter from another marriage. We have Asma. So Asma bint Abi Bakr is an adult at the time. Say the Aisha is much younger. Asma was probably 10 to 15 years older. So she's either between 16 and 20, give or take. It's not entirely clear. She prepares food for both Abu Bakr and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, or shall we say for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and then Abu Bakr. But because of the urgency of the situation with the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam having just left his home, blinding the eyes of those who would have assassinated him, There's an urgency here for them to pack their things and get the camels and get ready to head out in the darkness of night before anyone else catches on to what's going on. So she's packing all this food that she had prepared and as she's bundling it all together, she doesn't have anything to tie the food bag. Think of a large blanket and she's piling it with food and resources and she gathers all the corners together but there's nothing to tie a knot so she takes off this belt of hers you think of a belt as you know the thing with the fastens this is more of like a sash kind of belt worn by women so she takes it and she tears it in half but not with a knife she tears it with her teeth she bites into it and pulls it apart in half uses the second half to tie the food bag because she was in such haste. And after this, she was given the nickname, that anir uh, she of the two belts, because one belt now became two. So she prepared this food. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq now has the food supplies. He has the camels ready. One of them was just sold. How much money does Abu, Abu Bakr have at this time? Well, the seerah accounts mention that before, in the beginning of Islam, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq had approximately 40,000 dirhams accumulated besides his various trade ventures. This is how much money he had. At this time, he had 5,000. This is how much money had been spent, some for freeing slaves, some for caring for the needy, some lost expenditures. At this time, out of spending from his own wealth, he had 5,000 left. And he decided to take every single dirham with him because he had to build a life for himself and help the Prophet Sallallahu in Medina. Now, you know, it's Mecca, so there are resources. He's leaving his wife and his daughters to make hijrah alone with the Prophet ﷺ. He knows that they have enough resources to survive without this money. But as he's getting ready to leave, his father is notified of this. And the father of Abu Bakr Siddiq, Abu Quhafa, was not a Muslim. He was what we would describe as a blind, old, bitter man. He was a blind, bitter old man. And he was not happy about this at all. So he receives news that they're preparing to go and that Abu Bakr is taking all of this money. And he says, what kind of father is this who leaves his family behind without any money? So Asma bint Abi Bakr, she tries to smooth things over so he doesn't make a lot of noise. So she takes this sack and it's described in the narration as uh, the kind of sack people would use to store money. We would call it a piggy bank. So you know, the, the, the ancient Arabian version of a piggy bank, right, just a little sack for money. So she takes this money sack, and she takes some pebbles, and she fills it with pebbles, and then takes some more cloth, and wraps the cloth around that. So it, it, it's a money sack, but it's, there's no money inside. Remember, Abu Quhafa is blind. So she takes this sack and she shakes it and puts it in his hands see, see, he left us with some things. He left us with these things. And he was then satisfied that they did have some money. And that was that. So, Asma reflects on the story later and she says, the reality is our father did not leave us with a single penny. No one should ever dare say anything disrespectful for him doing that because it was a great sacrifice he took for a greater good, knowing they had resources after he's gone to ensure their survival. So she mentions that they had nothing. Abu Bakr knew that they would be okay. And so he left. We now get to the Hijra story itself, which is going from Mecca proper to the cave and all of the steps along the way. So we're going to stop here, so that next week we're covering the actual Hijrah route and the full account from exiting Mecca to arriving in Medina, and that will mark our transition from the Meccan period to the Medinan period, inshallah Taala. And I, I have, I have uh, some, I have a book I'm going to bring you. Uh, that has pictures of the actual Hijrah route and every step along the way mentioned in the narrations. Uh, there's uh, a city planner and also a Sheikh of Ilm, uh, Sheikh Abdullah Al Qadi, uh, who gathered all the narrations from the seerah and the hadith narrations, which identified every stopping point along the way and using ancient landmarkers and GPS, he managed to retrace the steps from Mecca all the way to Medina and take pictures of every single stop along the way. And this was compiled into a very large uh, photo book. So I'm gonna bring that and uh, you can purchase this book. Uh, you should purchase the book, but you can look at it inshallah next week as we describe those steps along the way and some of the different things that happened until he was received in Medina al-Munawwara ala sakiniha afdhulu salati wa salam wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallama ala saydina muhammad wa ala aarihi wa sahbihi wa sallam Any questions? Yes. Yeah. Of Asma. You're right. And, and we're not done with them either because one of the things we'll talk about next week are some of the consequences of their hijrah and the, the, the blowback on the family. Because once they realized that he had escaped, the first place they would go looking for him would be at the house of Abu Bakr. So we talk about... Asma tells a story about what happened to her, you know, when these people came her her assault and the other consequences usually come with three or four <laughs> she was I think she was. Yeah. No, no. This, the, the arriving, when he arrived in the middle of the day in the hadith of Sayyidina Aisha, this is describing the permission and the actual assassination attempt, from what I understand, had not yet occurred, right? So there is the convening at Dar al and the various suggestions made, and then they settle on assassinating him. The angel Jibreel alayhi salam informs him He informs Abu Bakr that it's now time to go. The assassination attempt occurs at night. He makes his way out at night, goes back to the house. They gather their belongings, get on the camels, and they get out. This also explains that she had time to prepare the food. Exactly, she was preparing the food. She knew that that was going to happen. So when Sayyidah Aisha is describing the midday, she's talking about after Jibreel came and informed the Prophet about what's going to happen, and the permission to make the final preparations to go. Uh, the actual, uh, it's not that he was there at night and then he leaves and then she sees him midday. No, that's two different events. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you're, you're referring to the hadith where the, the Prophet ﷺ made dua for Yemen. Allahumma barik fi Yemenina wa shamina. O Allah, bless our Yemen and our sham. And then someone said, wa najdina, Ya Rasulullah, and our najd as well. And he said, From the najd, ta'tla'u qarnu shaytan. It is from the najd that the horns, the horn of shaytan, rises. Uh, In the area of the najd are the trials, tribulations, and earthquakes. Uh, There's various ways that hadith has been interpreted. The basic interpretation is that the najd is uh, continually throughout Islamic history uh, an epicenter, often, of trials, tribulations, fitna, sectarianism, and bloodshed and discord. And depending on how you understand that narration, the Najd, if you look at Medina, east of Medina, you have the Najd, you also have the general area of Iraq as well. And many of the hadith commentators like Ibn Hajar would reference this hadith uh, regarding Iraq. A lot of the sectarian movements that arose in the history of Islam came out of Iraq. A lot of the bloodshed and civil wars arose And Iraq and I mean look at Iraq right after British rule you have the Ba'athist after the Ba'athist you have you have the invasion you have sectarian conflict you have Daesh all of this fitan coming from that area so that's it's in reference to that but Shaitan and Najd you know at that in that time it's just a reference to where he's coming from or what what he looks like in his accent and in his garb and how he describes himself. This doesn't mean that the people of Najd are bad people because the Prophet ﷺ said, Ashadu Ummati ala Dajjal Banu Tamim. The most fierce, the fiercest people of my Ummah against the Dajjal are Banu Tamim. Where is Banu Tamim located? They're located in Eastern Arabia and in Iraq. So you do have great goodness from that region. Imam Abu Hanifa, radiAllahu anhu, great Imams, Imam Junaid, so many great people from that area. It's just, it's also a center of trial and tribulation and conflict. But in this narration, him being the Shaykh of Najd doesn't reflect badly on the people of Najd. The people of Najd became Muslim eventually, alhamdulillah. But it was also a place where they killed Sahaba and there was conflict. So you have, you have both. Yeah. Nejd in modern day, when you say Nejd today, it means Eastern Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, Qasim, Buraida, that whole region. We don't typically refer to Iraq as Nejd anymore, but geographically the Nejd is the highland towards the east, which would encompass parts of Iraq and the Nejd. what we call the Najd today. Right.
1: <laughs> no, that's yeah,
0: that's yeah. yes, yeah. So there are certain verses of the Quran that are revealed in connection with these events. We mentioned two of them, Suhaibs and the one, the dua, when leaving and then when entering another city. There's that verse uh, in Surah Anfar which mentions how they plotted and planned to, to exile you or to prevent you or withhold you, detain you or to kill you. They plot and plan, and Allah plots, and Allah is the best of plotters. He knows that he's protected by Allah from the people. But Allah also orders him to take these steps. Because in every movement of the Prophet he is also modeling for us how we should be. We don't receive wahi, and there's no guarantee that we are protected by Allah from people. So we do take steps, and He's modeling how you have trust in Allah Ta'ala while also taking the necessary steps. Otherwise, He knows with absolute certainty nothing is going to happen to Him. He knows this, but He's ordered to take these steps. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil